Welcome to Words of Grace, radio ministry of Elder Ben Winslet, pastor of the Flint River Primitive Baptist Church near Huntsville, Alabama. We invite you to stay tuned to today's broadcast. Our broadcast today is entitled, I Will Build My Church, and will come from the book of Matthew, chapter 16, verse 18. Over the past couple of weeks on Words of Grace, we've considered subjects that have been found in the book of Matthew, chapter 16. We considered the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ from, in part, Matthew chapter 16, and the question, who do you say that I am, that Jesus asked his disciples in verse 15. Simon Peter, of course, answering, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus is the Messiah, but he's also the Son of the living God, and that makes him co-eternal and co-equal with the Father. We understand that Jesus is divine because he's the Son of God. That makes him equal with God. That makes him God. And so the Lord Jesus Christ is eternally the Son of God, eternally one with the Father. There are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. In response to that, Jesus tells Peter in verse 17, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. For flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. That was the subject for last week's broadcast here on Words of Grace. Whatever you know in truth about Jesus is because God has revealed that to you. While he reveals his Son to us in the new birth, he introduces his Son to us in the new birth, Anything that we know about him from the Word of God that's true, we know because God has revealed it to us. We lack the ability to understand spiritual things except through the Holy Spirit that lives within us. According to Romans chapter 3, we don't understand God, we don't seek after God as natural men, and so we don't know what we know about Christ through flesh and blood, but we know it through the enabling of the Holy Spirit. Anything we know from the very first introduction of God to us at the new birth to the things that we've learned through years of study, we know through God revealing his truth to us as his people. Today we come to this statement that we find in verse 18, and I say also unto thee, the Lord says, that thou art Peter, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is one of the more interesting statements that the Lord Jesus makes to his apostles. He says, Thou art Peter, which does indeed mean a stone, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. One of the prevalent views of this passage in church history after Roman Catholicism became what it ultimately ended up being, is that the Lord built the church upon the rock of the Apostle Peter. Thou art Peter, meaning a stone, and upon that rock the Lord built his church. That's a very commonly held view in the world, but it's also a very troubling view for a number of reasons. First of all, this isn't the church of Peter, it's the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, the Apostle Peter was like sinking sand in his life. He was not a rock for much of his life. Peter was the first to fly off the handle. 
Peter took a sword and took the ear off of the high priest's servant as they came to arrest the Lord Jesus, and then a few hours later was denying the Lord. After Peter had seen the resurrected Christ, he says, I go a-fishing, which wasn't in any sense recreational fishing, but that was his career. He's effectively saying, I'm going to go back to work. I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I'm going to go back to what I did before I followed Christ. And you might remember that Jesus meets him on the side of the sea there, and he says, Peter, do you love me more than you love these, more than you love the fish? Yea, Lord, well, feed my lambs and feed my sheep. He would ask him that three times, which was the same amount of times that he denied the Lord. There was a time in Paul's ministry that Peter was to blame for some division that was occurring. Paul addresses that in the book of Galatians. So it's obviously a troubling view to think that the church is built upon Peter as a rock. Fortunately, Peter would explain to us in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2 what stone the church is built upon, upon what rock the church is built. Jesus says in verse 18 of Matthew 16, Thou art Peter, which again means a stone, and upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. In the book of 1 Peter, the writings of this very brother in Christ, to whom Jesus is speaking here, Peter says that we are all lively stones. Peter is a little rock. I'm a rock. You're a rock. We're all lively stones built up in the house of God, but that the Lord Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone upon his church. So if you were to ask Peter upon what rock is the church built, if you were to ask Peter to exegete that passage, to expound upon that statement that the Lord Jesus made— Peter would tell you that he is not the stone upon which the church is built, but the Lord Jesus Christ, and specifically the revelation and professing of the Lord Jesus Christ, is the stone upon which the church of the Lord Jesus Christ is built. Jesus is the foundation of the church. Paul says that in 1 Corinthians, no man can lay any other foundation but that which is lain, which is Christ Jesus. Jesus is the chief cornerstone of the church. And you and I are living stones that are built up a spiritual house. Peter would tell you that Jesus is the foundation of the church. And as Jesus is revealed to people, these people see him. They have Christ revealed to them from the Father. They want to unite with the church. They want to be a part of the church. They join themselves in with the church as living stones and they're received into the church through the profession of Christ. As someone joins a church, before we baptize them, before they're added to the roster of the local church, we always ask, do you believe that Jesus is the Son of God and that he died for your sins? And when they say yes, we baptize them, and they are a part of our church body. So Jesus is the foundation, and the Father reveals him to people And that's how the church has been built for 2,000 years. As they profess their faith in Christ, they become a part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus says, very plainly, upon that rock, he would build his church. Now, I mentioned 1 Peter chapter 2 a moment ago. I want to read this passage to you. Peter says in 1 Peter 2, we'll just begin in verse 2, "...as newborn babes desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby." If you're born again, you're a babe in Christ, you are born again, desire then the milk of the word that we may grow thereby, if so be that you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. To whom coming, as unto a living stone, 
disallowed indeed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Ye also, as lively stones, are built up a spiritual house and holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Wherefore also it is contained in the Scriptures, Behold, and this is in Isaiah, I lay in Zion the chief cornerstone, a chief cornerstone, elect, precious, he that believeth on him shall not be confounded. Unto you therefore which believe he is precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed, the same is made the head of the corner, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at his word being disobedient, whereunto they were also appointed. But ye are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that ye should show forth the praise of him who hath called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in time past were not a people, but now are the people of God, which had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Now that's a lot of scripture that I just read for you, First Peter chapter 2, verses 2 through 10, but I wanted you to get the general theme of what Peter expressed. So, did you notice how many times Peter referred to Jesus as a stone? Verse 4, to whom coming as unto a living stone, disallowed of men, but chosen of God and precious. Jesus is a living stone. He is a stone. We are also living stones. Verse 5, lively stones built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. Every single one of us is lively, that is animate. We are living we are alive. We are lively stones. This word lively means alive. We're lively stones built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood that we should offer sacrifices that are acceptable to God by Jesus Christ. Now, to comment, go off on a little bit of a tangent here. What we offer to God that is pleasing to God is offered through his son, Jesus Christ. In verse 6, Jesus is referred to as a stone, wherefore also it is contained in the Scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious, and he that believeth on him should not be confounded. Now that ought to forever answer the question as to who the foundation of the church is, upon what rock the Lord built his church. Did he build it upon Peter? Well, it says here in First Peter, Peter's own writings, his own words, that the church is built upon the chief cornerstone, not of Peter, but of Jesus. There can only be one chief cornerstone. That's why it's the chief cornerstone. The church is built upon the Lord Jesus Christ. So here in verse 6, he's referred to as a stone. In verse 7, unto us which believe he's precious, but unto them which be disobedient, the stone which the builders disallowed or rejected, the same is made the head of the corner. In verse 7, Jesus is referred to as a stone. Look at verse 8 and a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, even to them which stumble at the word. He's referred to in verse 8, once again, as a stone or a rock. So Jesus is the stone upon which the church is built. We are a people, though we were not. We were formerly darkness. Now we are a people. And we are a very peculiar people, a particular people chosen of God that we should offer spiritual sacrifices unto God. And these spiritual sacrifices, this refers to presenting our bodies a living sacrifice as we gather in worship. This has reference to the fact that we are to 
offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. Every single believer is a priest that should offer spiritual sacrifices in the house of God. We don't have a priestly tribe anymore, an elite few who could enter into the Lord's house and offer sacrifices. But every single person that belongs to the Lord is to be a part of the church. They are the stones that make up the house of God in every different location, and they're also priests that should offer sacrifices. If some literary guru were to read Peter's writings here, he might scold Peter for mixing metaphors. You call us stones in one place, and then you call us priests in another place. In one metaphor, we're the rocks that make up the house. In another metaphor, we're the priests that go into the house and make the sacrifice. Well, both of those statements are true, just like Jesus is the lamb that was slain, but the priest that offered the sacrifice. And his body was a temple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up again. So we, as his people, were darkness, but we're now a people. We're the people of God, a peculiar people. That doesn't mean weird. It means particular. It means special. It means unique. We are the people that God has chosen to be the priest and the stones of his house that offer spiritual sacrifices unto him. But notice again, Jesus is the chief cornerstone. Or, as Paul said in the book of 1 Corinthians, no other foundation can any lay than that which has been lain, Christ Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is the foundation of the church. You and I can build upon that foundation, and we ought to take heed how we build upon that foundation, because the fire of this life will burn what we build, and if it's gold and silver and precious stones, what we build on that foundation of Christ is going to stand and become more pure. If we build wood, hay, and stubble, the trials of this life are going to burn it up here in this world. But make no mistake about it, the foundation of anything that is built is the Lord Jesus Christ in his church. Now, having expressed that thought to you, the foundation of the church is the Lord Jesus. The rock upon which the church is built is Jesus, the chief cornerstone. And like Peter, a little lively stone, we're all lively stones, living stones, making up the house of God. Let's consider the fact that Jesus built a church. The first thing I want you to do is just fathom that thought, something that you already know. Jesus built a church, but consider the significance of that. The Lord Jesus established this organization that we call the church, and it has been here in the world for two millennia. The church that I have the blessing of pastoring is called Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. When it was founded, it was simply Flint River Baptist Church, and this church is recognized as the oldest Baptist congregation in the state of Alabama, the earliest organized church in what would eventually come to be known as Alabama when this church was founded. It was in the Mississippi Territory. That's a long time for a church to be here. It dates all the way back to 1808. But the Lord's Church, it goes all the way back to the time of the baptism of the Lord Jesus Christ as an organization and an institution. The church dates to the baptism of Jesus Christ by John the Baptist in the River Jordan all the way back in Mark chapter 1, the beginning of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. The very first thing that we read in Mark's gospel is that John the Baptist is baptizing and Jesus comes to him to be baptized. This is important for us to keep in mind that the church dates all the way back to the baptism of Jesus because there are some people that believe the church began on the day of Pentecost after the resurrection 
and ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ. But remember, it was Jesus who established his church. It was Jesus who founded his church. If the church didn't exist in the ministry of Jesus, then what did Peter and James and John belong to? What were the apostles? Just a random group of guys living under the Old Testament? No, they were the original church. Mary, the mother of our Lord, Mary Magdalene, Martha, all of these different people, they were the first generation of the Lord's church. When there were troubles that would happen between brothers and sisters in the church, what does Jesus say? He says, go to them alone, then go to them with witnesses if they won't hear you, and if they won't hear the witnesses, take it unto the church. When Jesus said that, the apostles were not like, well, what do you mean church? What's what's a church? They knew what church was because they were the church. They were the assembly. You take it to the group, and they are to arbitrate that for you. Jesus' church began with his baptism. In John 4, his disciples baptized converts. What were they being baptized into? Well, they were being baptized into his church. Jesus built his church. He officially died for the New Testament, the new covenant of worship upon the cross of Calvary. And on the day of Pentecost, what Jesus actually does is send his church out into the world. I like to think about the church as a ship in dry dock until the day of Pentecost, and it's on the day of Pentecost that it officially is ushered out into this world for the work that it was called to do. But Jesus' church dates back all the way to Christ being baptized by John the Baptist. Number two, the word church translates from a Greek word that means assembly. So if it translates from a word meaning assembly, why do we not find the word assembly in the New Testament, why do we find the word church? Well, the word church is a word that comes from the Old English, a word that was pronounced kirk, and this word simply meant the Lord's house. And so the reason it translates church, this word that meant assembly in the Greek language, the reason it translates church is because that was a fitting, proper English word by this point in human history. For the same reason we find the word Easter in the book of Acts, We find the word charity in 1 Corinthians 13. Christian love is what that word meant in Latin. We find the word Calvary instead of Golgotha because it was a Latin word. It was a place name and a Latin word. It's very common for us to find such words in our English translations, and that's an absolutely fine thing. Church means the Lord's house, and the Lord's house is an assembly. 1 Timothy 2.15 explicitly says this. Paul writes to Timothy that he would behave himself in the proper way in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. So the church is the assembly, is the house, is the church. The church is the Lord's house. It is an assembly of people, lively stones built as a spiritual house. There's no problem with using that word church instead of the word assembly. If we're anything related to a Bible student or a scholar, we'll understand that church means assembly, and you can't be church without assembly. Number three, it stands to reason that Jesus would have built his church the way he wanted it. Now, this is going to be convicting and perhaps even offensive for some in the listening audience today. But I want you to understand that Jesus built his church the way he wanted it to be. It's our conviction as historic Baptists that what the church does and how the church operates ought to reflect what is depicted in the Bible. We refer to this as the regulative principle. 
we're old school as Baptists, not because we like being traditionalists, not because we want to be old-fashioned. Sometimes primitive Baptists, one of our faults is that we think being old-fashioned is the goal, and so we want church in some locations to look like 1950 or 1800 or 1850. The point of being a historic Baptist such as myself is not that we're old-fashioned in the way we dress or talk or think or worship in terms of what the building looks like in which we worship, but we want to do what is depicted, reflected, commanded in the Word of God. And this is referred to as the regulative principle of worship. And that simply means that we do things that are commanded or depicted in the Bible, and also things that are a good and necessary consequence of that which is commanded or depicted in the Bible. For instance, we know that we're to assemble, we're to be in one place. A good and necessary consequence of that is to have a building to come together and worship in, either in a home or a rented center or an official auditorium that the church as a group of people owns. That's a good and necessary consequence of that which is commanded. If you worship in an area where it's cold, having a heater is a good and necessary consequence, even though it's not expressly mentioned to have a heater in the Bible when you gather together in worship. You're to sing. Well, that requires that we have something that we read the lyrics off of, right? Well, that's a good and necessary consequence of that which is commanded. There are many, many examples of good and necessary consequences of that which is commanded. But we do what is depicted or commanded and the things that might be attached to that, the consequences of that. Scripture is our guide. Sometimes we get hung up on custom or tradition, but the Bible is to frame our worship. And what does that look like? Well, it looks like worship, people singing praises to God, audibly expressing praises to God, having a thankful heart to God as they worship. It looks like Bible preaching, the reading and explanation and preaching of the Word of God. It looks like prayer, because they gathered and they had prayer in the church, in the Bible. It looks like fellowship. Acts 2 talks about how they continued in the Apostles' Doctrine and fellowship. It looks like discipleship, people mentoring other people and growing and learning. That's what it looks like. And it looks like the administration of ordinances, baptism, and the Lord's Supper. That's what church is supposed to look like if it reflects what it looked like in Jesus' day. If you and I want a real revival in American Christianity, might I suggest that we try to pattern what we do off the Word of God. It is superior to the ways that people have invented to worship God. Number four, how is the church built? Well, we read that already in the book of 1 Peter chapter 2. God calls his children from death and sin to life in Christ. The Father reveals his Son to people, as we saw from Matthew chapter 16. And as they are now alive and hungering for the Word, as newborn babes desiring the sincere milk of the Word that they grow thereby, preachers are to disciple them. As preachers disciple them, they are to be baptized, and they are to join in with the church and continue learning of the Lord and learning His way and learning His Word throughout the rest of their life. Now, we want to be very clear that it is the Lord who adds daily. The Lord adds daily to the church, such as should be saved in Acts chapter 2. But the Lord primarily uses the means of gospel preaching and the Word of God to gather people into His visible assemblies. 
Sometimes in Baptist history, Baptists have had the idea, if they embrace the doctrines of grace, as we believe here at Flint River, that, well, if the Lord wants somebody here, he'll just get them here. But the Lord has sent ministers into the world to preach the gospel and gather his children. We are literally gatherers of a harvest in the preaching of Jesus. We are shepherds who round up sheep who have no shepherd, and we are people who go out into a harvest, for the fields are wide unto harvest, and gather baskets. Those are simple metaphors, but they are so powerful. As ministers, we go find those people that God has called from darkness into light. We gather them by preaching to them and baptizing them, and then they walk with us through this world. That's how churches are supposed to be built. They're not to be built with entertainment. They're not to be built with compromise. They're not to be built by being trendy or having entertaining productions. There are a lot of things in the world that are called church that are built in those ways. But the church is to be built through preaching and discipleship. Now, number five, about Jesus building his church from this passage Thou art Peter, upon this rock will I build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. God never leaves himself without a witness. Acts 14.17 speaks to that fact. In Luke 19.40, we learn that if no one worshipped the Lord, the stones would cry out to God. But God has chosen to have the church as a place where his new creatures would bear witness of him for the rest of time. For instance, when the Apostle Paul wrote about the importance of communion in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 26, he said, through the Lord's Supper, we actually show his death until his second coming. We show the death of the Lord through communion until his second coming. That means that when Jesus returns, people will be taking communion. Now, let me be very clear. Satan, nor all his forces, have the ability to stamp out the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Churches do die, and they die because their own sin, because they grow stagnant, and sometimes practical reasons, like a community dying and everybody moving away. But the gates of hell shall not prevail against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I know sometimes we're a little alarmed at the spiritual state of our country and the stagnancy of some of the churches that we might be familiar with. But remember Paul's words in 2 Thessalonians 1, To you who are troubled, rest with us. The Lord Jesus is coming again, and he will gather, when he comes again, all who believe in that day. We don't have to worry about the future of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ as it relates to its survival. The church will always be here. But you know, we need the church in our own personal lives. Listen to me, and I'll be brief with this. First of all, we need the church because God deserves worship. That's enough of a reason. We're commanded to worship God, to present our bodies as living sacrifices, to offer the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of our lips. God deserves worship, and that is enough of a reason for us to continue in church. But number two, we need church because we need to be fed. As newborn babes who desire milk, we need to be fed the sincere, the unadulterated Word of God. In a world full of suffering and wars and rumors of wars and plagues and pestilences and earthquakes and fires, in a world full of calamity, we need the sweet assurance of the gospel of Christ. Number three, we need the church because we need the fellowship of the saints, and this includes accountability and mentoring. We need the friendship, 
the companionship, the fellowship of those who are like-minded in the gospel of Christ. And we need people to hold us accountable. We need people to mentor us and to depict for us what mature Christian living is to look like. That is our responsibility to one another in the church. And then number four, communities need the influence of the gospel. This world is a dark place without the Word of God preached and without the Word of God lived in the lives of God's children. The church is to be the light of this world and the salt of this world. Light illuminates. It enables us to travel without danger. Salt is a preservative that kept meat from rotting in Jesus' day. When Jesus says that we're the salt of the earth, he is saying that we are the thing that prevents human culture from rotting away. We need the church because communities need the influence of the gospel. So I suppose a good place to end our broadcast today is Hebrews 12:12. May we lift up the hands that hang down and strengthen the feeble knees. Again, I'm Ben Winslet, thanking you for listening to Words of Grace today, inviting you to write, let me know that you've received the broadcast, and also to tune in again next week at this time. Until then, may the Lord's richest blessings be yours, is my prayer. If you enjoy the messages you hear on Words of Grace, consider this your invitation to visit a Primitive Baptist Church in your community. Address your correspondence to Words of Grace Radio, 641 Moontown Road, Brownsboro, Alabama, 35741, or visit us online at flintriverpbc.org.